On this edition of The Plate Meeting, we talk with Brian Herzog about his MILB career, life after baseball, and situation handling. It's the latest episode of The Plate Meeting, and it's next. We welcome you to The Plate Meeting right here at CloseCallSports.com or wherever you're getting us. And uh, good afternoon, Gil. How are you? Very well, T Mac. How are you doing today? Doing, I'm doing very well. It's a, uh, it's a beautiful day, uh, and uh, you know what else? It's a beautiful day for Gil. What's that? Beautiful day to uh, get some close call sports gear. We have ramped up our uh, our inventory, and uh, whether it's a t shirt or a collared shirt or you know uh, your some un- some under uh, under gear or uh, just a just a logoed uh, bumper sticker, we've got it for you, and it's on. Uh, www.zazzle.com that's z-a-z-z-l-e.com is slash umpire ejections uh that's www.zazzle.com slash umpire ejections and it's u-m-p-i-r-e-e-g-e-j-e-c-t-i-o-n-s and i'm reading that and i still have trouble spelling and uh, in addition, if you just want to give us a couple of bucks here or there, maybe get your name mentioned on the podcast, you can do so by going to CloseCallSports.com and uh, just clicking that uh, donate link. You know, these uh, takes a lot of time and effort to uh, to do these podcasts and to run the website. And to be honest, uh, we're doing it at a loss. So uh, any bit of uh, money that you could support us would uh, go a long way. And while you're here, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Also, uh, Umpire Ejections is our handle for both of those websites. Yeah, over uh, twenty-seven or 3,700 uh, Facebook likes. Love to get to 4,000 before, uh, before the playoffs uh, begin. And uh, we are nearing 3,000 as we uh, record this, nearing... Uh, 3,000 uh, Twitter followers. So it'd be great to uh, to uh, get to that before the playoffs start as well. And, and thank everybody for uh, your continued support and being part of the Close Call, uh, CloseCallSports.com family. Easy for me to say, Gil. Oh, yeah. Well, we, we, we it's not like we write these things out. In any case, without further ado, let's get into the show. Hey everybody, it's T-Mac, it's Gil, and our special guest on this edition of The Plate Meeting is Brian Herzog, and we didn't do a biography of our previous two guests, but if you don't know Brian, he's a Jim Evans grad of 2006, umpired nine years in the minor leagues from A-ball to AAA, at MLB spring training, and his last professional game was the 2014 AAA National Championship. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Fun to be here. And uh, we neglected to mention, we'll get to it, that uh, in your your current job is the CEO, president of Official Business. And uh, just before we start, what is Official Business? Official Business is something I started right after uh, my time in the game. So just after 2014, I guess, conceptually, I just wanted, uh, I wanted a way to bring this point of view, our umpire's point of view, over to player development because I can see a lot uh, in – uh, in rules knowledge, in uh, in game management, and 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 the like that, that just wasn't processed by the player side, and, and things that in football people use uh, 
rules proactively. And in baseball, they just want to sit there and tell you it's a Bach instead of actually playing the game and, and playing the game based on how we call it, you know. And, and we're going to get to a lot of situational handling on this edition of the plate meeting. But as we begin, let's talk about what we always talk about with our umpires in our uh, first question. What made you decide to put on the gear? Well, I, uh, I started with a balloon, I guess, mid, mid late teens. And I did it for a couple of years in the summers. And then I really got out of umpiring. I didn't really think it was going to be anything um, legitimate as far as a career in my life. And let's see, we went through, through 2001. I was unemployed for a little while and then we had 9-11 happen and it became harder to get uh, employed. And I started to pick it up a little more. By 2003, I had uh, started with uh, Northwest Baseball Umpire Association, NBA here in Seattle. And then a couple of years later, I remember sitting at a Mariners game with my dad. I think both the Welke brothers were working, oddly enough. But uh, he started telling me, you know, if I wanted to try this professionally, I'm not getting any younger. And I came up with the money excuse. And he said, oh, that's that's not going to fly. <laughs> the big the big is if is if you can get Bonnie to say yes, my wife. So had a long discussion with my wife um, and my dad supported me uh, throughout that entire uh, career. And uh, and obviously my wife did too. And I've had a wonderful family and it's just been a pretty awesome career if you <laughs> to yeah. want to come down to it. So it can be so rewarding. And, and let's, let's take a journey through that minor league career hurts here. You decided to go to the Jim Evans uh, Academy in 2006 um, take me through that experience. 2006 was fun. We had, um, as they see him, was written on, on that class. So uh, if anyone hasn't read that book, I would highly uh, suggest it. Um, I'm already blanking on the, uh, oh, Bruce Weber was the, with the author. And it was a really fun read for me because it just kind of chronicles my umpire school experience. So um, it was a really fun year. We had a lot of names that are now getting jobs uh, like Quinn and uh, Hamry and um, Siegel still uh, working up. And about 10 years later is when replay opened up. So there's been a lot of opportunity for the, for guys from that year. So it was really fun. We still had the Coco experience back then where we would go for 10 days and be evaluated out after umpire school when uh, both of the two schools come together. And then from there, just started in the low minor leagues, uh, almost got to the Arizona League, didn't quite get there, sitting side by side with uh, Ryan Blakeney, actually, at the SeaTac Airport. And I was called to get my bag off the plane and go to the Pioneer League. So a uh, fun little start, um, not getting to go where I thought I was going to go, missing the first day of the season because of it. Your minor league career starts from there. We're going to get to a couple of uh, brawls and a big league spring in a minute. But you start in the Pioneer, get to the South Atlantic Cal work Arizona Instructs, Texas. You got to work the Venezuela Winter League back when umpires from MLB uh, were, uh, I guess, I want to say allowed to work there, but with the Civil War going on, who would want to go there at this point, and the Pacific Coast League. Any, you know, just uh, cute stories from your time in the minor leagues? I'd say Venezuela is one of the the most shaping portions of of a minor league guy's career when you're trying to go from double a AA to triple a or you're already in triple a and um and they want to get you some four-man experience that's that's some of the some of the best uh experience you can come away from because i i went in between double a AA and triple a when i came back it, all of a sudden it's just it's just nothing here seems that difficult um after you know dealing with thirty thousand angry venezuelans I, I remember one one game there i had three ejections and had to you know they, they don't sell hard alcohol in the container, but they do, I don't know, get by the laws by pouring it into like a Gatorade 
type bottle. And uh, so all those fans uh, have been drinking for a while by the time the game ends. And I remember trying to duck off the field and then duck into the locker room and see a very large piece of ice because they they just had bags of ice and they chunked it up in big chunks. And so I saw a very large baseball-sized piece of ice flying towards my head, got to deflect it away with my mask, and then thought I was home free, ducked into the locker room, but got a got a big beer on the head before someone snuck it in right before I got into the locker room. So, you know, after the umpire in those types of situations, it's just, it's not that difficult here anymore. Uh, mm. If you kind of keep that in context. So experience a lot down there in a short amount of time. You get to officiate the, the triple, the 2014 AAA national championship in, uh, in the OK, OKC, right? So tell me uh, what kind of honor that was for you. Um, you know, a lot of people, say it's it's an honor, but they know the end is near because that's the going away present. Um, when you found out about that, what was going through your mind? Yeah, well, it was uh, it was in Charlotte that year, actually. Charlotte, North Carolina, that was one where it was in the, uh, in the International League. They switch every year. So the All-Star game is in one league, and then the championship game is in the other. So uh, as far as seniority and being able to choose which one you work, you know, the first four – first four senior crew chiefs will choose which ones they get to work. And uh, I wanted to, I, I knew it very well. It could be my last year. We Sometimes you can just see the writing on the wall. And then I knew as we got closer, if I didn't get Arizona Fall League, that there's a very good chance it could be my last year. So uh, I decided to go with the uh, the national championship game. Uh, some guys would prefer to, uh, well, for instance, if you're an up and down guy, which I did not have a number, but if you're an up and down guy, you'd prefer to choose the the all-star game so that you can be available to go up and down more in September for them and not be bogged down with playoffs because you, you prefer to be in the big leagues. So that was one reason I took it, though, um, was I did see some writing on the wall, and then it became a great experience as we got near the end. I didn't get fall league. And I'm like, man, this is going to be a great run. So I, I crew chief uh, through the through the Pacific Coast League Championship and, uh, and and then moved on for that one final game. And my wife got to come out for that. Uh, my mom, my little brother was stationed out at Cherry Point, North Carolina. So he drove down for it. Had some other friends there for it, too. And it was a really, really great experience. Happened really fast because you, you fly in, get a, a little bit of rest, do some events, go work the game. We had an hour, 45-minute rain delay in my final game, um, which is just wonderful. And then we finished the game with very empty seats since uh, about 90% of the people left during that rain delay. So yeah, You mentioned a little bit, Hurts, about the writing on the wall. There's a certain psychological aspect to minor league baseball and even you know major league baseball. Do you mm-hmm. have a number? Do you get big league spring? Do you get instructs? Do you get Arizona Fall League? Do you get winter ball? And for some people, the reactions are different. The tenseness uh, kind of changes you. It can, or you just kind of go with the flow. Talk a little bit about how, you know, the psychological aspect of uh, the way umpires are treated in minor league baseball. It's not easy to deal with. Um, kind of always feeling like you want to get to the next level, but maybe your evaluator's plans aren't exactly the same as you would you would have. Um, but I think that's important, at not just the minor league level, everywhere. I mean, I just did a um, – uh, an evaluations meeting with my local association here. And uh, every, everyone wants to keep moving. Everyone wants to keep advancing. And I would, I would look at a guy's, you know, tenure or whatever. And I'm like, well, you got, you got three years and, you know, you advance those two years, but there's no problem with just cooking at one level and being able to get the games in 
that will get you that experience, you know. So whether it's that or whether it's the minor league level, um, it, it's important to be realistic and just realize there may be a different plan for you. Um, it's really because it's really easy to get caught up in, oh, my gosh, this guy got promoted ahead of me. And how could he possibly, you know, oh, my gosh, this guy went to winter ball. I, I don't know why they would send him there. Um, it's just too easy to get caught up in that stuff. And it just creates and when you when you when you take a look at that in, in the macro over the course of a whole career, it just creates bitterness by the end. And it's just it's just not what not that I didn't fall into those ruts every once in a while, but that's just not who I was going to be like. I, I couldn't come out of this game, you know, bitter that I didn't make it to the big leagues. You know, it was my goal was to make them finally release me when they said, nope, you got as far as you can. Uh, thank you for your time. That's what I did. And it sounds like it sounds kind of easy to say when I got to the level I got. But in reality, because I think from the outside, it looks very um, it, it looks like you're so close and you're right there. Um, but in reality, there's still so many more steps to go through. You still got to get to get to Arizona Fall League. I didn't get that in three years of AAA. From there, you got to go through Fall League, perform well and get an invite to Big League Spring. From there, you have to earn a Big League number out of Big League Spring. It may not be your first or your second Big League Spring. And then from there, you have to start going up and down. And then from there, maybe or maybe not, you'll be hired. I mean, you're still not sure. Depends on when the jobs open up. Um, replay helped a lot of guys uh, be able to navigate that and, and hold on a little longer. It's kind of a bigger carrot in front of them. And, um, but you see guys like, you know, Rob Drake uh, spent a total of 18 years in the minor leagues, technically. I know he was, while he was up and down, he was pretty much permanently up those last few years, but still yeah. long. Chris Gucci, thirteen hundred games, you know, yeah. and and then you talk about the guys that worked, you know, uh, the Angel Camposes, the Matt Hollowells that worked hundreds upon hundreds of games mm-hmm. at, at the highest of levels and didn't get the opportunity to uh, to get a full time job. It's not easy. No, not at all. I mean that that could have uh, that could have tur- it could yeah, Angel uh, six hundred. Is that about right? Six hundred games. We could we could check that momentarily. I think. He's got to be up there as far as uh, I know, you know, Fagan is in the 550s, I think. And um, but th- those are guys that I've I had the luxury of being able to work with just because of the time frame that I came up through the system, too. That's that was uh, that was pretty awesome for me. That's just guys that I can reach back now and, and throw some philosophy off of or something. It's about 20. I got to work with about 25 percent of the current big league staff just because of the time frame in which I, I came up and those first five, six, seven years, maybe six years, there were about one big league job given out per year. And then replay opens up eight new positions. And then we have a, you know, unfortunately we have a death in, in Wally Bell and then a couple of retirements. And next thing you know, there's 11 jobs in three years. So just because of that time frame in which I came up, I also had the opportunity to work with those guys. And um, that's something that, uh, that's my only disappointment about not going further is I don't get to be on the field with those brains and get to learn and learn and learn and learn and learn um, because that's some of the funnest parts right there. But I do have the opportunity to pick their brains otherwise and love talking about umpire philosophy with them and just hear how it's going in their careers. You know, just imagine you, you work 585 games at the MLB level. That was Angel Campos uh, for seven years in the league and that's it. Or Clint uh, who worked 522 from 2011 mm-hmm. to 17, and that's it. It's a tough road to be on with with you know very little job security, if if any. Yeah, and I the thing is getting to learn from those guys. I, I remember coming up and I you know thinking I'm a 
big triple A umpire now. It's my first year in, in, in the PCL and finally getting to work with Angel uh, and Foreman and just the little things that I had not, had not um, used or, or processed yet. Uh, we talked about on a fly ball with a runner on first and a fly ball, the left field. He said, why don't you just walk across the middle of the infield so that you're on the third base side when he catches that ball of the cutout. And we talked about why. And he said, so you're, you're never going to need to be on the second base side. Right. And, we know it's a can of corn, but if you walk over there 100, 200, 300 times, some point he's going to drop that can of corn, and now your second baseman stretching towards left field is going to be the angle that you're already standing there for, and you're going to look like a million bucks. I'm like, that's that's so simple. <laughs> and so, like, why haven't I incorporated that yet? Um, su- such a small thing to add that, uh, again, nobody would know the, the – the work you put into that. Nobody will know that you did that 300 times before you were at the perfect angle uh, for it to happen. Um, and it's just a small thing. And it's so easy. And I, I, I spoke with a, a young 15 year old umpire about that this year. And then we went to a Mariners game and lo and behold, we saw Sean, Sean Barber do it. Uh, he flipped over on the other side and I just gave him a look and he was like, that's the thing. That's what we were talking about. <laughs> like Exactly. I've never actually seen it, you know, come to fruition before, but those are those little things that, um, it's just amazing the the tiny tiny little things you can add to your games from working with those guys. Now, one of the things that you've done following your career is giving back, and as someone that uh, that believes in that very much, teaching and and helping people get better. But can we talk a little bit about you know the different dynamics uh, of what happens as you uh, you get released? You know, we've got the guys who disappear. We have the guys that really do, you know, flourish in college baseball or whatever career. We've got the guys that become teachers or get jobs and whatever. And we have the guys that nobody wants to work with because all they do in the locker room is talk about how they got, you know, screwed in minor league baseball. You know, what's the solution here? Is it just everybody's an individual? Or um, is there a way to maybe transition umpires from leaving minor league baseball a little easier into their future careers? Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's any one solution um, because every career is a little bit different. I think the higher you go, the there's a higher chance of maybe coming off a little more bitter uh, or, or being shot out the other side of the game a little more bitter. And um, it, it's really tough. I, I went and did one year of college ball, and uh, I was told that kind of my attitude in the locker room was more, uh, you know, that I that we wanted to talk more about situations post-game and that partners enjoyed being able to, you know, BS with me. Uh, in the locker room and some guys just don't want to talk at all. And um, it, it is really tough to not come out that side of baseball bitter, uh, at least for a little while. Um, but it's, again, it just wasn't going to be who I was. I wasn't going to, I, I wanted to be very, very happy with the career I just had and then use it as a platform for, um, for something else. And I didn't really know what that was yet until kind of official business came into my thought process. And, um, and now more than trying to climb the college ladder, uh, or reach any level of baseball. It's more about getting on on field with as many different umpires as I can at any level, um, whether that be a, a high college uh, college game or just a low uh, tenu uh, not coach pitch, but a, a tenu tenu game that maybe this guy just wasn't going to get to work two man that game, and so he's just excited he doesn't have to work one man anymore in his third game of the day. So um, I would much rather do that, have that impact uh, on the game and, and, and be able to have guys ask me questions from a career that I think was pretty cool. So 
Um, and, I, and I encourage the guys too that are coming out of the game to to not let that that bitterness is going to hit you a little bit, but not not let it take over your life by any means or your career um, past uh, past your time in the game. Hurts in the uh, six degrees of Bob Davidson segment this week. Uh, <laughs> You've got uh, an interesting story. One of your first, if not your first, uh, big league spring training uh, plate job. Uh, yeah. Bob Davidson on the field with you, and uh, Bob took care of business. Yeah, I liked. Uh, I can't remember the caller from from that <laughs> that first podcast, uh, but he talked about just Bob having your back on the field, and it would it would be awesome to work with him. Indeed, it's pretty fun to work with him. Um, I don't. I don't really know him that well. Uh, this was really our only run in. Uh, but I remember my first one out in Surprise, Arizona, because I was in Surprise minor league camp, and I, I just happened to get the the big league game at the stadium. And I just remember I had worked with. Uh, well, I've talked with this player since then, so I'll mention it. It was uh, Brett Brett Peel from the uh, from the Giants. Um, I had worked with him throughout the minor leagues, all the way back to California league. So we had worked literally every level, I guess. Starting with that game, we'd worked at every single level of, of professional baseball. And he had a uh, – well, Bob was working second base, but Brett had a, a pitch, that, a strike three that he argued a tiny bit, not really that much. I think it's more just he had a relationship with me. We know how to interact with each other, not a big deal. But Bob doesn't know that. Bob just sees a young guy um, umpiring and a young guy arguing a pitch. And he was working second base, but by the time that – in between innings had finished. Bob was working first base. It's uh, <laughs> kind of lighting bread up a little bit out there. And I'm just, I'm just sitting at the plate looking out there thinking I cannot wait to get back to the locker room and find out <laughs> what's going on out there. <laughs> so he backed me up. Um, he, he told him not knock off the, knock off the, uh, the arguing with the new guys, you know, and Brett's thinking, well, no, I actually kind of know Brian because we worked, you know, no, no, no. All you, you guys want to, every time there's a new guy behind the plate, you just want to, you know, and just went on about it. So a little context, he Bob probably didn't know that we did actually kind of had a relationship, but to Bob, it also didn't matter. We did, you just got to, he, he does see that and he's going to take care of the new guy. And he does see that from time to time that they're, they're really going to try and take it out on, on the new guy. Obviously I hadn't been on a, uh, been on one of their games before. So it was really nice to have, just look out there and know your partner had your back just and be waiting for the story too at the same time once you get to the locker room. So um, I, I talked with Brett about it just this last winter meetings uh, we were at and um, it kind of, it kind of clicked for me that it, that it was Brett and we talked about it and he Brett just said, what's up with that? And I said, Oh, Bob, Bob's just taking care of business. It was a, it was a good old school approach. Uh, he just didn't know that, that we knew each other. Like, he doesn't actually have a problem with you. I mean, unless you've had other run-ins with him <laughs> not that, not that I don't know of, but. Let's talk some situations. First, uh, a major league spring training situation. I want to talk about this Eric Hosmer ejection in spring training. A, how familiar with were you with um, close call sports at the time? And uh, if you were, when you clicked on uh, after your ejection, uh, what does that feel like as a minor league umpire uh, to get publicity on on, uh, on a website uh and then if you can't take me through what Hosmer said in that spring training game. Yeah, that was interesting. I, I had worked with Hosmer a couple of years too. So uh, it was, and I had never really had anything beyond um, just normal discussion type arguments with him, uh, ask questions really well, I thought. Uh, and then that situation, uh, I remember, it, I mean, it was the third inning and it was, uh, you've been, you've been effing horseshit all day or something like that, you know? Uh, and 
it was as simple as that. And he left and, um, so it sounds like he wanted to leave it, that. That's what I'm saying. I, I really don't think it was anything. I don't think Eric had a problem with me really. Um, I might've, I, I mean, I might've wanted to leave too after, um, <laughs> I remember the I remember the first strike three was uh, Felix painted on the inside corner. The second strike three painted on the outside corner, and I might have want to leave too that day. So, um, but it, it was I didn't I don't have any problems with Eric. I always got along with him really well actually. But uh, it, I was aware of the site. Yeah, a couple of years earlier than that, I was aware of it. Um, is that right? When did you guys start? We started, uh, we started way back in the history. We could go into this all day, but we started, uh, way back in 2006. We went online in 2007, left field corner at that time. And then we transitioned to umpireejections.blogspot.com in 2010. Whatever that was. was. And then I, uh, we, then, uh, then we went to closecallsports.com in 2011. Yeah, so I was aware of it. I didn't know the little transition phase in there, but uh, I think when I first became aware of it, I think it was under com. but someone told me to Google left field corner, and it would pop up that way. I, I can't remember the exact beginning, but I had been aware of it for a couple, a couple of years, so it wasn't um, – but I, I don't think you really had covered a bunch of the minor league stuff. Uh, so it was kind of, it was, I mean, it was kind of interesting to have it up there and, uh, being able to see that little clip of it was like, all right. And, uh, and then be able to break it down and see what you could have done different. Cause we're always trying to learn. That was, that was actually my only interaction with, uh, uh, with Stevie Palermo. Actually, he, he was there to witness that ejection and, and was in the locker room afterwards. And his suggestion for me was that everything was technically handled perfectly and if you want to add that little extra thing that goes, you know, makes you takes you from, you know, excellent to just absolutely exceptional, you walked the way of first base and it was your first baseman who had an issue with the play uh, with the pitch. So little addition, maybe walk up the third baseline instead. Uh, and he's and he has to go a little bit farther. Maybe he doesn't get run. But again, I think he was just trying to get run that day. So. Well, continuing your yearly appearance on the Close Call Sports website, uh, 2013, June 15th to be precise, the Memphis Redbirds and Albuquerque Isotopes had a little exchange. We'll put the video down below the podcast, but uh, Hertz, this is one of a couple of brawls involving Albuquerque uh, for you, and uh, this Mm -hmm. one here was uh, pretty ugly. And the 1-0, that one's up and in, and Sellers is pointing at the pitcher. Someone's been ejected. The benches are clearing. The umpires are getting in the middle of it. Cooler heads are going to prevail. At least I think cooler heads are going to prevail. The bullpens have emptied out, and they are now coming into it. like some people from the bullpen punches are being thrown it is on it is on at the lab and it's ugly yeah it um it it looks like everything hit the fan quickly but uh yeah there's a lot of i guess context behind that we had had a a home run the previous day this had put this put them up i remember 11-0 and it was about a 365 foot home run over a 364 foot wall so he really got it um and he took 32 seconds to round the bases i remember having to write that in the report um and his his third base coach last manager was waving around home uh waving around third base to home you know as if he's about to barely score on a close swipe tag or something 
So everyone knew that uh, he had pimped this home run that he barely cleared the fence with. And um, and then they removed him from the game. So I was thinking, great, this is going to be me tomorrow. Of course, why not? So uh, we we had a weird way to start off the game. The actually That was his second at bat in the video. And so there's even more context during the game because the first at bat, uh, they did throw an off-speed pitch that sailed behind him, but he ducked and fouled it off, which really threw me for a loop. You know, I've never been thinking, okay, so am I going to run somebody? Am I going to do warnings, this and that? Oh, the count's 0-1. Okay. <laughs> so that threw me off for a second. I remember starting to give warnings, and then a, a couple of the Aces players had come down and were holding guys back, and I'm like, all right, I'm kind of getting cooperation here. Let's just finish out this warnings and not not get an ejection on it. And I think they're going to be happy enough with they had their little chance and they actually ended up uh, in the positive. They actually ended up with a no one count. So um, at that at bat progressed and, and just continued kind of normally. And so I, I thought I was right in my decision. Um, and then the next at bat, he he did get a little chippy, a couple a couple pitches. This well, you see you see the placement of you know where the catcher has to go. How the, how the catcher made that pitch look. Now, I, I mean, I, I knew where it was, and I knew this guy had been chippy, and they, they were still kind of going at each other. And, and I was thinking, man, there could easily still – any of these little things could still easily turn into a brawl. So when that pitch came in, uh, this is kind of some game management stuff too, um, I kind of processed that that pitch is basically split the plate. It's a little kind of flirting with outer third and above the knees. And I know what that looked like with, with the glove, but doggone it. I'm thinking if I get this, he might be so pissed at me and just turn his attention to me. And that's what it's all about is, you know, just getting their attention off of something else. And for a moment, even, and uh, if you watch the video, it, it did work. I was quite proud for just a split second that it, that it worked. He takes, took his attention. That he just thought would be a called ball. Bolsinger shakes Blake Lolly once. Now he's ready. The 2-2 pitch. And the next thing you know, uh, my catcher puts his shoulder into into the batter as he throws the ball down to third base. And we have a brawl. here they come again. Arula Barrena and Lolly just got tossed. Benches clearing. The whole Reno Aces team is chasing Arula Barrena. We got a full-on melee here at Aces Ballpark. The, the Isotopes Aces, 10 ejections. That uh, That's a lot. Um, pretty mm-hmm. pretty crazy situation. But one of the things that you – I don't know. Did you have video to that? Were you able to go to the video before you wrote the report? I mean, what is your league president expecting out of a report? How did you, uh, you know, report that into the league, Hertz? I'm quite thorough with all my reports. So I, I found out early on that they – there needs to be no doubt in, in what you write. You need to paint that picture properly. Um, and, you know, I've been given uh, many kind words on my reports and I, I just know it's going to take forever. My, my partners hate me for it sometimes because it, I have to make sure everything's perfect and it's going to be very time consuming. Uh, this one I remember submitting at 5 a.m. Uh, Reno time, whatever, whatever time I was on. And um, it, we did have use of the video. Uh, sometimes, there in Reno, actually, if the uh, if the call went again, it was kind of a, a unique 
a situation with them sometimes if, if a call went against, against them or if an injection was more involving them, sometimes the video wouldn't show up on MLB, uh, on the MLB website quite as promptly as it did other days. But, uh, but I was writing late into the night, quite late into the night and it was going to be up, um, anyways. So I basically wrote it all out, uh, the way we had it, uh, with all the names we had in our lineup cards and all the notes we had in our lineup cards. Um, and then went back and fine tune everything once the video went up. So I think it's a, I think it's a good process to go through rather than just watching the video first. Um, I mean, sometimes maybe you don't have the video or, uh, at every level, obviously, or, um, or maybe you're just going to fine tune quite a few things that, that are in your uh, ejection report there. So I liked to write the whole thing out based on what I had on my notes and then go back through it and go, okay, that was this guy. Or you may even leave some names blank because you remember, uh, you remember someone came in and held somebody back, but you didn't write their number down because it, it, it wasn't one of the guys who threw a haymaker, you know? And so when you go back through the video, you may have left a name blank and, and, and he came in and, and kind of helped us out. Cause I, I want to make sure I mention those guys too, not only the troublemakers, but the guys who actually took the time to um, help us sort it all out. So you might add a name that, that uh, if you forgot, you remember what happened, but you forgot who it was. Uh, and then just fine tune a bunch of the stuff and make sure it's just written in absolute pristine condition so that nobody at the league office um, has to question anything about your side of your side of things. So speaking of brawls, we've mentioned this before. It's, it's Albuquerque and the Memphis Redbirds bottom of the fourth. It's eight to two Albuquerque. There's nobody out and the batter gets thrown at his head. And there are some brawls that can be prevented hurts. And there's others that you just, you just can't stop. And when the bench is clear this quickly, you got ahead of the batter, tried to get him away. Your other umpires did an outstanding job, but it just escalated quickly, and it was on. There's going to be a lot of consequences for this one. Yeah, that one. So, yeah, so that one, uh, I sorry, I automatically go to that Isotopes Aces one because that's the one that most people ask about. But um, that one, yeah, that one was a more of a – I can't remember the the background of he had done something the day before or anything like that, uh, but I do remember him getting thrown at and that we were ready for something. And uh, that that was there was going to be no might there be a warning or anything like that, especially when they they threw up and in uh, on him like that. So I just got him right away, and uh, that was uh, Trip Gibson's working first base and Adam Schwartz is working third on that one. So it uh, sometimes they're just going to go at each other because that is um, that's something right there that's very similar to the. Uh, to the Hallian and Hamry situation because uh, I, I really hated it that the end of that the end of that situation when it first came out without the Hallian uh, commentary on it uh, how the announcers just say you know umpires don't understand that sometimes they just make it worse and well I've had three fights my last two years in the game and they were all involving the Dodgers so I do know how the Dodgers react to certain things and that doesn't mean I'm going to go out there and ah. umpire away or or try and take care of them in a certain way. It just means I'm going to be aware of what's going on in the field. It's just, just good umpiring. And if you watch that situation with Adam and how quickly Adam gets that ejection of Syndergaard is why the Dodgers don't react, I feel. So it's very, very opposite of, of what the announcers said. In fact, the camera cuts to the Dodgers dugout and you see Dave Roberts hop up to the, the front step and then kind of back down a little bit like, all right, if you want to lose your starting pitcher in the third inning, I guess we'll let you, you know, type of thing. And I guarantee if it's not handled that swiftly, that that does not stop with them getting at the top step. It goes beyond the top step. Let's keep on this track of, of, of situation handling. This is one of the things that people ask the most about. Um, 
Because as good as you can be calling balls and strikes, safes and outs, if you don't handle situations, you've got big problems. And let's talk brawl prevention. You get the pitch, guy hits a home run to lead off an inning, let's say, with two outs. Next pitch comes inside. Now, to me, and, and, I, and I'm sure you'll agree with this, how the offended dugout reacts is really, really important. If they start <laughs> screaming, hey, we're going to get you too, now we would probably issue warnings. If they don't say a word, then we can let it go. If the pitch is at the chest or at the knees, we can probably let it go. If it's at the head, we might have to just automatically eject. Take us through, you know, some of the thought processes of how you handle potential throwing at incidents before they happen. Yeah, I think uh, I think major leagues have wanted wanted different things in more of the last decade or so. They wanted umpire to to put an end to it sooner, um, not let this uh, tit for tat thought process play out. Um, you know, and I, I had that amount of, I had, a, I had a tiny bit of old school in me, uh, or that part at least, where, uh, you know, once we're even type of thing, okay, now we'll issue warnings so that the penalty for taking it even further, if some guy, some guy wants to go rogue, the penalty for taking it even further is a bigger penalty. Um, but you really have to read everything that's going on in the field. There's so much, I mean, that, that uh, specifically the, the isotopes aces brawl, I mean, that is so, that feeling is so palpable out there on the field like everybody knows something's going to happen um you kind of breathe a sigh of relief any pitch that isn't thrown (laughs) isn't thrown at this kid because you're like all right (laughs) got a moment to regroup for the next and uh but at the same time you know based on his uh his his actions the previous day that his own team was not very happy with how he handled the situation so how is their dugout gonna gonna react and, and whatnot? It's it's a very case by case situation that there's no one right answer for. And if you do not have all the context, which is why I think it's pretty irresponsible for these announcers to be commenting at all on what they think they know. Um, all the context that goes into a uh, you know a heads up report from the past crew. That's exactly what happened on the field. I've even had heads up reports that included things that happened in the hallway back to the locker room because the teams happen to pass each other and and we happen to to be very close to that situation too. So um, those get all sent on to the next crew chief um, in case something happens. And, and, you know, nobody but those crews really has context for what, what happened on that field. And, and, and then you got to read the dugouts. And then, I mean, I don't think there's any one right answer for that, that you can throw over every throwing situation for sure. There's no blank, no blanket statement that should be warnings after this should be. They're quite unique. Let's talk handling situations as the plate umpire ball strikes. You're hearing it from the dugout um, for whatever reason. You know the pitch was a strike, but for whatever reason, you're just hearing it from the dugout. Tell me, take me through your thought process on handling chirpy dugouts. I, I pretty much stick to what I learned at umpire school, and I ignore, acknowledge, uh, warn, and then eject. And that's, you know, there's, there might be an extra ignore in there if it's just very ridiculous arguing uh, or it's very uh, one person who I've already got eyed out and I know – I know a whole dugout doesn't need to be taken care of or something like that, but it's, and I may, I may jump past that ignore if, um, if they actually want an answer, if if a a coach is asked if I have it inside, outside, um, if I ball the pitch uh, or if he wants to argue that it was too low, I'm not, I don't know, but I, I pretty much stick to that, that formula because there, whether you add an, when you add an extra warning or you add an extra acknowledgement or you add an extra ignore, it's still going to be the same formula. Just kind of feel out what does this situation need right now? And then as you move into college ball, you know, you're now you have to actually go through that extra process of 
time is all right, this is your warning. And you come out and you write it down, which I don't like how they added that process because I, I think it looks more aggressive as an umpire. Now, if I was in the dugout, I would kind of, Ooh, you know, I, I would think that looks <laughs> like I'm, you know, I, I think it looks kind of challenging from the umpire, but coaches at that level continually did not understand that that's enough. Stop it, et cetera, et cetera, were warnings. So they wrote it into law that it has to be done that way. So what you've kind of done is, is back us into a corner where we have to do it this way. I'm sorry if you think it looks aggressive. Sorry if you think it looks challenging, you know, like we're challenging you, but uh, this is the way they wanted it. And, you know, it's kind of interesting at times, but. <laughs> it's T-Mac, it's Gil. And our guest this edition is Brian Herzog on the plate meeting, the CEO of official business. So, so Hertz, we're talking about, handling situations and and you're at the plate and a batter is a little uh, squirrely kicking rocks, arguing balls and strikes, but he keeps his face in front. What's the difference between a guy turning back at you and keeping his face looking at the pitcher? Uh, professionalism. I mean, he just, he knows how to have the conversation without telling everybody else that we're having the conversation and that's fine. And I'll engage, uh, I'll engage quite a bit longer on that. If we're talking about something right now, I mean, we just had the situation with Gibson where uh, a batter's trying to do it from his previous at bat, you know, and I'll get, I'll get guys, you know, say something under their breath, but if they want to continue that conversation, especially when it's about a previous at bat, we're not going to continue that. But in general, if we're, you know, he's, Asking about a pitch, disagreeing with a pitch, just, you know, hmm, you don't got that down, you know, type of thing. I'll, I'll let that type of thing go and answer them as if they're real questions, as long as he doesn't turn it into something that's clearly not a question anymore. Um, I think more is more is let go uh, through those types of situations than the, the fan or player demographic even uh, even understands. Uh, because the guys that do it right, you never really notice. Now, Hertz, you were part of the, one of the first replay situations in uh, in one of your big league springs. And I want to transition to a second about the way uh, people are handling close plays uh, on the bases. But uh, what was it like to be part of that, that review? I was, uh, man, that was a unique situation. I I remember them telling us kind of the process we would need to go through because they were just trying to, in fact, they were trying to encourage uh, the managers at that point just to, to, to use it as much as possible. Uh, it was about going through the process for everybody. Uh, at the stadium, on the field, back at the replay room, everything it was about going through the process and, and making sure we have this process down before expanded replay hits Major League Baseball in a couple days. So um, they had been doing that all spring training. I hadn't had any any games where, uh, and again, I wasn't at a whole spring training, uh, Major League spring training. I was in my minor league camp, and then I would, you know, get my last three years. I would get, you know, four or five games um, depending on the year. So. This was my last year in the game and I think my last couple games and they were at Chase Ballpark in Phoenix. So we had the option for replay. And uh, I remember the play at the plate and it actually was one of those plays where in my mind immediately I was like, ah, I think I might have missed that one. <laughs> it was one of those. So uh, I remember uh, who came, uh, Kurt Gibson came out and he just, I think he had just, just had hip surgery and I wasn't going to make him walk all that way. So I met him about halfway to his dugout and he said, oh, we want to take a look at it. Okay, sounds good. So I uh, met Teddy over at the at the headsets and hopped on. I remember at least the process then was I, I went up to the booth and I told them exactly what was under review because there could be multiple things about a play that's under review. And and then they passed me through to be listening to New York. I'm not talking on that one, just listening to Teddy 
uh, Teddy talked to New York. So uh, they took a look at it, came back. We're watching it on the 60 foot screen. You know, <laughs> I think I already know that I've missed it from watching it a couple times there. Um, there was, there was a good angle that showed him, uh, showed his glove missing the calf where I had him, t- uh, uh, touching him and then touching him up on the, up on the thigh. And by the time he got to the thigh, his hands were actually pulling apart too. So the ball was in his glove and his, uh, the ball was in his hand and his glove was empty. And they came back and said, yeah, I think we're going to have to change it and popped off the sets and Eddie changed it. And then <laughs> like a great crew chief he is, I started to walk and, uh, give me a little pat on the butt and Hey, he said it was close, you know? Don't forget to don't forget to finish the game. I was like, "Yep, yeah, no, I'm good." And I, I was good actually. I was just like, I, I was thinking one. I don't remember him saying it was close, but thank you. And two, uh, I don't care. I was just on replay. Like that was that was amazing. So <laughs> never gonna get that you know uh, opportunity again. <clears throat> um, chances are, I mean, I, <laughs> that's just quite a unique experience to to be a part of. So. We all know that there are uh, umpire clinics uh, galore that you can go to, pay hundreds, if not sometimes over $1,000 to attend. But Official Business offers uh, clinics for players, umpires, coaches, and also tries to uh, educate parents. Uh, Hertz, how do people hire Official Business? Uh, You can shoot me an email, brian.hertzog at officialbusiness.us. That's really easy. Um, But we've done... Uh, we've had a lot of travel this year um, where we have done a lot of the uh, either umpire training and, and being able to go and work, uh, work a tournament in uh, well, out, out of the country. We've done uh, Austria, Taipei and England this year. And so I, we enjoy being able to get on, on the field, with those umpires and, and do more of a just umpire only stuff. And then I've done, you know, I have worked with a couple teams, um, professionally and and amateur baseball and and work with their catchers specifically and so we've done we've done a lot of the individuals right now uh where we're doing the catchers or i've talked with hitters or where i've uh worked with umpires specifically and i'm still working on getting everything together in one clinic that i i kind of dubbed as a hybrid clinic although we haven't had one of those yet where it's everyone together um but i i think that'll be important because i what i see with those in getting all these demographics together um, is just the, the the learning across all these different demographics. So, you know, you might have a parent sit in on a catching class that starts with, you know, some some catcher development, uh, like a Benji Johnson catching is really awesome. I've worked with him a couple of times. Um, so you might get to sit in on your kid's training with the catching coordinator, and then the backside of that would be working with me as an umpire to to learn Oh my gosh! If I stand up, you can't see the pitch. It seems really, ah. it seems really easy for us. I mean, I, I missed one in Taipei. That I mean, I only know I missed it because I went back and watched. But it's it's middle of the thigh. The whole ball's over the inside of the plate, and you got a catcher standing straight up in front of me. Sorry that I missed the pitch. I, I you're standing up in front of me. You know, <laughs> so um, I, I like to. I mean, it's 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 that easy. It's it's from stuff that's that easy all the way to. Some really incredible AAA and big league catchers I've worked with, we have such a good working relationship. They understand my point of view, my literal and figurative point of view. And they understand that if they come inside last second, I, I don't have a way to adjust for that mid-pitch. You know, I can't just all of a sudden move my head because it kind of defeats the purpose of all my other training back there and keeping your head still. And you can't just whip your head around last second and actually get a good look at a pitch. But through talking we all- and through communication, 
we we were able, uh, you know, a couple catchers have been able to figure out that. I remember one telling me, so so Brian, if I and I don't want to tip off my my batter, right? But so if I touch your left leg and and that keyed you into me coming inside, would that help? I said absolutely, that would help. Then I would I'd be able to make this adjustment before you even got there, and I know where you're going. Um, and I know I know you're trying to wait last second for you to not tip off this batter. So like this works out well. So when you have that working relationship where you don't even have to talk to each other. And you just kind of know where each other's going. I mean, that's that's the same as working with your umpire crew for 140, 150 games, you know. And because um, I know I know I get lackadaisical with uh, kind of communicating to some of the guys I work with because uh, at some point you get into a rut where um, you, you know you don't need to you don't need to say anything to these guys who you've been working 140 games with. Uh, I know based on these those tiny little characteristics or tiny little things that they do, if they're going out on a ball, if they're rotating in, if I know what they feel on uh, on a balk just by looking at them. I, I know if the look on their face uh, lets me think that maybe I missed it or, you know, we have all these little intricacies that we that we work with uh, uh, with our partners and our catchers. I mean, as far as working with any sports official, that's the closest relationship there is in all of sports. I mean, nobody gets to work that close with us. So trying to teach those guys that there's actually a lot to learn from the umpire. If you'll kind of take his literal and figurative point of view uh, into, into account. And um, so when I, when I teach them and then they, they get into asking, of course, well, why aren't you over the middle plate? Well, why, if I go outside, aren't you over there? And so I, I, I can get into teaching them that, well, it's in reality, you can create consistency from any point of view. Here's why we do it from the inside part of the plate. Here's what the slot position is. Here's what head height means. Here's what distance from my catcher means. But uh, the simple physics of that, when you start to come up, that bottom outside corner uh, disappears first. You know, that's just math. So when they can get that, it's just it's it's actually really simple stuff that that they can help out with and they, they can help us get more strikes. Uh, and again, I'm not saying like to be able to steal strikes from us. I'm saying I've seen these pitchers on a computer and I know their strikes and and, uh, and and the more that they can do to help us get them, the faster the games will go for one. But uh, but the less arguments there will be, and we'll just have a better working relationship back there. So I really think it's a big deal working with catchers specifically, uh, teaming up with more and more catcher development across the country uh, to where we can kind of get those thought processes overlapping. And um, and then if we go into a city as well, because uh, I don't want to just do them all here in the Northwest or, or anything like I want to go out into as many different cities as I can. I think the dynamic of that is that when as a catcher, when you learn to work with an umpire, you're not just learning to work with an umpire. You're learning to work with an umpire you may see later in the season. So hopefully that starts a conversation too, to where uh, those catchers at the end of their careers, because I don't think now is the time to tell them they're not going to be in the big leagues, even though we all know the odds. But start the relationship with those catchers who can very likely, uh, if we if we do it right, uh, become umpires in the future uh, on the backside of their careers. So or during their careers. I mean, we don't want to give away all the secrets because then they won't hire you. But um, we all know that that the communication between the catcher and the umpire is is just so integral to having that catcher go back to the dugout and say, "Yeah, I had it inside," or the catcher on a pitch at six and inside say, "Oh, it was a strike," because he doesn't like the umpire. So mm-hmm. that dynamic of getting into a good relationship. Um, you know, the catcher's trying to manipulate you. We all know that, but sometimes we have to also try to smooth the catcher a little bit, but that's not, it's not easy. And and that's one of the things that, that, uh, that you're not only teaching the catchers how to deal with umpires, but the umpires, but let's for a second, talk about that catcher, the one out of 25 who just, he's going to sit up as high as he wants. 
He's going to block you off, middle in. How do you communicate with the uncommunicatable? Um, you know, you can't communicate with everyone because some people just don't want to be communicated with. And you, I think you need to do the best you can do where it's not coming off as coaching because then you get coaching staff pissed at you that you're actually trying to coach their guy. Just make sure it's not coming off as coaching. Uh, and, you know, you need to do this or you need to do that. or And just come off, uh, make sure you come off as – but when you do that, I can't see the pitch. And it's I a fine line, Hurts, too, right? You don't want to tell a yeah. guy I can't see because then he goes running to the dugout saying he can't – the umpire can't see, right? Is I mean, I think it, as you if you relate it to he's standing up in front of you, I don't think it's as worse – as bad as – uh, you know, it's it's not like I was out of position and I'm saying I can't see the pitch. Mm-hmm. I was in position. You stood up in front of me, and you know the really hard ones. I don't know. Wait for a. <laughs> I shouldn't do this. Actually, but say wait. I was gonna say wait for a pitch in the dirt with a runner on second and see if he blocks it and then looks around the batter and see if he actually gets the concept of having to see through somebody. I don't know. Um, oh, so we understand the concept. So that's how I'm trying to look at pitches with you in front of me. <laughs> So don't go that far, but there has to be something where you're, you're only teaching them based on, uh, you're only teaching them what you, what you can give them basically. So uh, your point of view, just keep, keep it out of the coaching area and keep it more about your point of view. And if, if you want to jump up last second, you know, it's very simple. I'm not going to reward the team that took away my view uh, of that pitch with a strike call, I, I can't see the pitch in the strike zone. Uh, or, you know, if you notice something about them, just say, Hey, if you're going to come in that late, just give me, give me that tap on the, the, on the leg or something uh, that can be pretty advanced. I don't, I don't see a lot of guys do that. I only worked with a couple guys who were able to do it, but I think we can get some of those thought processes out there that uh, just haven't been explored before. Maybe some catchers will actually, uh, you know, come up with some of their own stuff. You know, one of the things that um, that it just it, it it really it stuns me that you pay seven hundred dollars for a camp and they don't talk the first thing about how to communicate with people. It's all this is the spot to be in. Well, but what the important thing is uh, is after you make that call, somebody might be yelling at you, and how you handle it is going to make you or break you as an umpire. In my opinion, in my judgment, anybody can call all ball strikes, outs, and saves. So the dynamic here is you get – we're talking amateur baseball now, Hertz. You get the manager, the head coach in this case. Uh, let's say it's a college game. He comes sprinting out of the dugout. He's hot and fiery. How are you handling that? How are you teaching guys now to handle angry people coming at them uh, from a distance? I usually try and let them talk themselves out first. And then, uh, you know, if you can let them let them get their little run of, of whatever they're going to say, usually tires them out a little bit, I think. And then and then just pick that open spot for uh, if they're leaving you an opening and, and and you have your point ready to go. Uh, and, and typically, if they, if they haven't tired themselves out yet, they'll, they may start start right up again. And a common thing I go to in that situation, if they try and interrupt you again, is um, just, hey, I I sat out here while you said your piece. Can you give me a moment, you know, type of thing? And most of them will respond to that. Like, you know, yeah, he, he did listen to me. Um, I, in fact, I had that turned around on me just uh, about a month ago in, in Florida. Uh, and I, I responded well to it as an umpire. And I went and thanked him later. And I said, we don't get a lot of guys like you thinking communication out like that. Like, well done. And I, I had said, I, I told what I had uh, in this situation. And then uh, I think I started to talk after when he tried to talk and he said, Hey, I, I heard what you had on the play. Would you mind? Oh yeah, no problem. <laughs> so I, I had it turned around on me and it worked on me too. So 
uh, I think that's a, a an easy one to use. Honestly, just just give them a you know, like, hey, I listen to you, and but you got to let them you got to let them vent it out, uh, you know, for a few seconds first. Hurts for whatever reason, college baseball uh, umpires are almost exponential. Everybody wants to work and get the, get the decent money. I mean, heck, you, you can get more for some college weekends than you got for a month of uh, minor league ball. Mm-hmm. However, um, from the high school level down, it's um, the umpires are just disappearing. And I think a lot of the reason for that, and one of the things that I, I do a little bit is I work some of these youth tournaments, and you can go an entire, you know, one of these 10-weekend tournaments, 10-game uh, weekend tournaments, and nothing happens. Then, But there's one game where you just have two or three, uh, usually uh, males, but I guess they're going to be moms too, but parents in general, uh, that are just relentless. You just wonder who let them out of the house. Um, and it's killing umpires from wanting to go out there. And I can understand it. Um, what is going on with these parents? Is it in the water? I mean, help me out here figuring out, uh, should we ban parents from the games? I mean, it is crazy, the behavior that we're seeing. Yeah, it's it's in the emotions, actually. it's. Uh, I would suggest, and I'll try and make a little note to to post this article when I uh, when this podcast comes out but um, John O'Sullivan at Change of the Game Project wrote an article on uh, why parents rage uh, very very uh, I, I would just go follow him frankly uh, Change of the Game Project well uh, a lot of well written out pieces he is a uh, he was a, a soccer player uh, played professionally and coached at the college level and uh, observes this on the youth soccer fields that he, you know, goes around to as, as his kids play now. So he talked about how uh, the emotion is just another, it's just, it's another way they're viewing these plays. It is, you know, when you have that, that player out by a half a step, that's really not that close to you. And everyone yells at you that you missed it by a mile. They really see that. They really see that. That's what their brain sees. It's pretty crazy. Uh, there's this added level of uh, your your thoughts have to go through how you process your vision, your the sound. Uh, um, as umpires, we know uh, how much we use sound. All of that has to pass through the area responsible for for emotion as well. And when I don't have emotion as an umpire, as an added variable to that play, it becomes very easy. It really does. And um, so this is what they see. Then it has to, it has to pass through that portion of your brain to come back and for you to be become aware on that. So that's that's the first thing that, that the eight ball that they're behind is that they don't even realize that, no, indeed, we're, we're actually really not watching the same game. Um, I don't have emotion in anything that happens here in, in any of this outcome of this game. But when you have a dog in the fight, that is what, uh, you know, if, if you have something to gain from this, that, that's what that's the tipper right there. You are unable uh, you are unable to watch a baseball game in a manner where you can't insert your emotions on it too. And so we, we literally see with our emotions at that point. So Hertz, I don't know if you saw the softball there. Maybe you're the one who posted it where the, one of the sides, the parents were yelling at the umpires and the other side was yelling at the parents to stop yelling at the umpires. And the next thing you know, a full scale riot in the stands uh, was taking place. And then the little girls are just stunned. I mean, we have collectively, uh, as a society, lost our minds when it comes to youth youth sports. And I don't know what the solution is, but I know that uh, if you want to help your uh, your organization or group, 
call Brian Herzog, send him a Twitter notice. What I don't know how what how Twitter works. In all fairness, uh, <laughs> or, or 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 look up his website. It's officialbusiness.us. That's uh, O F F I C I A L B U S I N E S S dot U-S. Because I have to admit, I also don't know how to spell business. So uh, that's, that's a mouthful too. Yeah. My own edification, Bri. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can. Well, I guess it depends on the platform you're on. I'm not a big Twitter guy either, but I'm uh, at Brian R Herzog on any of those on Instagram, on Twitter, on uh, Facebook. Uh, if you feel like following me or messaging me, but uh, it's, I, I really think it's in, it's in getting, getting those parents and players involved in, in the umpire type camps. And I mean, we'll have our own umpire type stuff. That's, that's just us still, but I, I really think it's, it's in weaving all these classes kind of in and out of each other to where certain groups are in very specific parts of other classes that apply to them too. They just don't know what applies to them yet. You know? Yeah. I, I really just think you open up, I think you're stunted. I think your baseball IQ is stunted. If you have not taken the extra perspective of trying to learn whatever your sport is, trying to learn it as an official too. I think that absolutely. Uh, Cause what you're alluding to, I think, and as well as what you offer at official business is this, Really, this concept, I don't know if it's called as such, as uh, empathy training, which, Absolutely. you know, as, as a parent or as a, an athlete, a coach, you understand the umpiring aspect. But I think of equal importance as an umpire, you have to understand where all these various actors are coming from, what they're trying to do. For instance, quick example, I cannot tell you how many people I work with in basketball that, uh, you know, they officiate the sport. And for those who play, they know the game. That's, that's fine and dandy. But there are others that they don't know things like a like what a two three or a pick and roll or or zone versus man or you know various things that if you officiate the game you might want to get an idea of what's going on because not only does it help you understand what the players or the coaches are trying to do you might be in a better position both figuratively and literally if you can anticipate what plays are going to come up. Oh, absolutely. I did basketball for a couple of years, mostly to be in shape come baseball season. I, I weighed in my best that, that spring training, but uh, I, I did it mostly for that. But my skills don't like, like the timing and everything transfers over to officiating another sport. But my skills don't quite transfer over in that I'm not passionate about basketball like I am about baseball. I didn't grow up playing it like I grew up playing baseball. And so things don't click for me. Uh, as they would in baseball. I, I remember working one three-man game in basketball, three-man in baseball and four-man in baseball. They just clicked for me, and and they it, everything flows for me. I understand everything about it because you understand the game, and, and I was immersed in the game my entire life. Basketball, you know, a three-man and how you and how you split up uh, coverage areas and whatnot, uh, I, I could not grasp. And I've only worked the one, but I've, I've studied it more, and, and it's still – it didn't come to me as quickly, uh, anywhere near as quickly as baseball and, and wanting to then do more and do four man and do, you know, well, six man every once in a while. But um, it just it didn't it didn't click for me like baseball does. And so it doesn't it, I'm not as good of a I, I will never be as good of a basketball official as I am an umpire. 
Um, and also I handling situations doesn't really come across well because I'm used, I still, I still yell across court as if I were yelling down into a dugout, you know, or, and, uh, they don't really take that well in, in basketball. They kind of wonder what you're doing. That's not exactly how you handle situations there. So, <laughs> so uh, one last question, since it's a, it's a baseball umpiring podcast, and, and this is something that really concerns me. Um, how do we get everywhere? There's a, there, there's just a lack of officials but it seems like especially baseball there's a lack of officials for the youth how do we change that how do we change the culture and get umpires back umpiring i'll give you a quick story as you're thinking about that answer i remember our uh association when i was a kid we had a major parent problem growing up in in new jersey and they decided that okay every team is going is got to have a parent or and if you can't get a parent to do a coach officiate three games and it worked it, it really seemed that okay now everybody's like boy it's hard to be out there you know and of course it was the bubble it was the the communal mask and communal shin guards and they were doing you know nine year olds but uh, nine year old baseball games but is that an idea how do we change the culture so um, we can make you know umpiring fun again yeah I well it changing the culture is very it, and it's spot on, but I think you got to realize the the weight uh, of that because it's it really is you, you're a- absolutely trying to just change the zeitgeist. Like it's a it's a big task to take on, but it's I believe that part of that is getting is getting fans the education. Now, how do we get them? Well, it's 2018, and you, you know you try and use social media to to be able to get out some of the information you need to get out. And that's what I'm working on right now and and trying to be able to, even with this podcast, it's great. Hopefully it'll land in front of a couple of players or a couple coaches or a couple of youth sports parents that uh, didn't realize it was so bad. But yeah, soon enough, uh, it's kind of simple economics. Uh, Baseball's growing. Uh, Youth tournaments are growing. We're losing umpires, and soon enough, there's just not going to be any umpires to play the game. So our 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 goal in, in when we talk about this type of stuff is that your kids will have an opportunity to play insert sport here. It doesn't have to be just baseball, but it is that is our platform to be able to give this, um, you know, give these types of talks on, and this is our little soapbox. So I think getting getting fans information, educating them is one piece, and then getting uh, you know proper recruitment. Uh, on the officiating side, and then when you when you look at ours, we have seventy to eighty percent of of those new recruits uh, only lasting two years. I think it's kind of a mentorship side of maybe you know your association, uh, depending on what you have. I, I know mine here has a two year mentor program. I think I'd like to maybe see three years because you know maybe that first year is nothing but mentorship and nothing about that umpire. The second year you kind of um, start teaching them a little bit uh, about how they might be able to give back to the next person. And then maybe that third year, your mentor is actually mentoring the guy who's you know, mentoring another first year guy and really keeping them involved through like three years, um, I think would be a big step from, from an umpire point of view. You know, I really hate the thought process or whenever I hear that umpires just need to let it slide off their back more and more. And it's like, that's not what it's about. I will, um, I'll be just fine. I'll sleep like a baby tonight. Uh, it has nothing to do with that. It, it's just about who, where am I going to give my time? And uh, if you're a league or an association or, or uh, a tournament who's made it okay for certain things to happen and they, they routinely happen at your tournaments, I'm just going to give my time somewhere else. It's it's as simple as that. And then, uh, so, you know, the, the, the veteran guys, it's not that they can't take it or that they should take more, you know, 
it's that they're just not going to give their time to those types of tournaments. So then you're losing um, very quality officials. And if we don't have those quality officials, all that does for the perception from from the, the fans is then they complain more about how horrible the umpiring is. And well, you're losing, you're missing a lot of veterans who don't want to work your tournament anymore. So it actually stands to reason that the quality might go down a t- tiny bit. Now, you still don't know what you're talking about when it comes to umpiring, but Let's just talk out the math there. So you, you have different dynamics and just the economics of it all just flows into like, we're not having umpire. I'm having, I'm having guys at the end of their careers going, you know what? I'm not going to put up with this anymore and I'm done. Those are my veterans that could be training, uh, training young umpires. Um, and then on the other side or the retention side, we have 15, 16 year old umpires who are being yelled at uh, for an interference call that, Either was or wasn't there. Maybe they missed it, but I got news for you. just don't know what interference is because they're 15 years old. I was going to say, I got news for you. They're not supposed to be good umpires yet. Like, they're just learning. But this is a 10-U game, and they're still being argued with as if this were a a major league playoff game, you know? So it's just getting pretty ridiculous. Um, And then on the flip side of that, on on the parent side, too, just goes back to some of uh, John O'Sullivan's other writings in, in, in Change of the Game Project. He is a big advocate of that car ride home just needing to be nothing but, you know, just like a big, I love to watch you play at the end of the game. And that's what, you know, youth sports is about at that level. I think that approach, uh, and, and I think not blaming other people, whether it's the umpires or whether it's the coach uh, or, you know, that other team, those kids are just too big. They shouldn't be on that. I mean, the whole car ride home, is pre- that's pretty much what it consists of now. And so uh, at the end of the car ride, it's, uh, well, what, what did I have to learn from that situation? Oh, nothing. It was the umpire and my coach and the other team's fault based on what my parents just told me. So we take away those uh, those failures uh, from from players and not let them take ownership of it. They're, they're never going to have to learn anything if it's we're just always putting it on else you know like let's learn something from these failures that's the best thing that i mean look at my replay i, I now use that replay in in teaching what i could have done better in that situation uh, plays of the plate because i love to teach about plays of the plate and um that was such a big learning situation for me that was awesome and meanwhile my my wife's in the stands not knowing if that just means it's the end of my career she has no idea what this means for me she she let a little tear out to be honest so um it's it, it's a unique situation um but uh, those unique situations on the field need to be turned into learning situations. Um, it's just so important. It's, it's, it's really tough to, there, there are so many more dynamics that I'm sure I'm not even aware of yet. Uh, but as, as I try and bring, bring this, you know, perspective over to player development, obviously I'm learning so much too, uh, whether it's the business of baseball and I'm working with a, a professional team uh, or whether it's just how they think and how they process at different levels. I can't thank you enough, uh, Brian. It, it has been a cerebral discussion that uh, that I have enjoyed tremendously. And I think it, you know, I, I hope people listen to it just because it's so important in, in the culture of umpiring to, to talk about, you know, how we make this culture better on both sides in order the, to make us both flourish, players, coaches, uh, umpires at all. Thanks so yeah, much, Brian. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here. And it's Brian Herzog, the CEO and president of Official Business. You can check out his website at officialbusiness.us. Give him a call at 206-486-0717 or send him an email at brian, that's B-R-I-A-N dot Herzog, H-E-R-T-Z-O-G, at officialbusiness.us. And that will wrap up another edition of the Close Call Sports 
Plate Meeting Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. For our guest, Brian Herzog and Gil, I am T-Mac. And until next time, happy umpiring, everyone. Mm-hmm.